Thank you so much for being here. By the way, my name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together we are The Minimalists. And we are live in Washington, D.C. Yeah! We're just, we're here, uh, we're start we're kicking off the second half of the Love People Use Things Tour. It's January 6th. I'm just wondering, Ryan, do you think this is probably the craziest thing that's ever happened on January 6th in Washington, D.C.? Too soon, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be a bit of an insurrection tonight. We have some amazing oh. guests. Uh, we'll go ahead and introduce them, and then uh, we also have a microphone set up somewhere right over here. So if you want to line up, it usually takes one person to break the seal, and several people come up, and they ask their questions. We're going to have a conversation with our guests, but we're really here for you. So we want to hear your questions, your comments, your concerns, your thoughts. So feel free to step up to the microphone and, um, and ask those questions. But first, I want to welcome them both to the stage at the same time. This first gentleman you know from Netflix. You know him from his hit show, The Revolution of One. You know him as a 10-time guest on the Minimalist Podcast. Are we still keeping track? <laughs> I think he's going for 11 rings, right. the Bill Russell thing. Yeah. yeah, so he'll be here with us tonight. And then uh, an author. He has a great new book out. It's called uh, From Paycheck to Purpose. You know him from his nationally syndicated radio show. Please welcome to the stage TK and Ken Coleman. Yeah. Oh, they're over here. I got some mics right up here. Uh, you pick whatever mic you Oh, yeah. You embarrassed me in front of our audience, man. I was planning on, like, hopping over. Yeah, there you go. So we're here in Washington, D.C., and we've never had the brothers Coleman on the stage at the same time together. Uh, Ken has been on our show a few times. We've been on his show uh, out in Nashville. And... Um, he is America's career coach. If you have any questions about jobs, careers, especially in these weird, uncertain times of work from home and a lot of job uncertainty, that would be great tonight. Ryan and I will obviously answer questions about minimalism, relationships, etc. And TK can answer a question about just about anything. <laughs> and uh, you will get something. Um, he's sort of the Zoltar of the minimalists. We often call him the, the third minimalist. So, um, what do we want to talk about tonight, gentlemen? Well, let me, let me point out that, first of all, TK, it's pretty obvious that he is the, the best looking of the Coleman brothers and oh, uh, the gosh. smartest, so uh, it's, this is fun to be on stage with him. We've been friends for a while, and, and we had dinner tonight before this, and it was just kind of wild. And so I just want to say, hey, this is, he and I, we, we love being together. Uh, we love being with you guys, and, and, and aren't the minimalists amazing? Give them some love. And so I just want to say thanks for letting us be here. This is fun. Oh, keep going, Ken. <laughs> it's an honor to be up here with Ken, man. I've, I've been looking forward to this moment. So, look, I, I got a travel story. Can I give a little yeah, travel story? Yeah, go for story? it. Yeah. So uh, my flight arrived last night, like around 7.30. I get to the hospital. I go to the front desk, and I say, I'm dragging, man, and I got some work I need to do. Where can I get a good cup of coffee around here? He goes, there's a Starbucks across the street. They close at 8, though. You got to hurry. I get checked in, take my back to the room, run across the street, walk into Starbucks, Starbucks, 
large cup of coffee, please. He gives me a large cup of coffee. I get it. I go back up to my room, sit it down, pop open my laptop, time to work. And then I look at the cup. It's like filled to the brim. I can barely drink it. I'm like, I got way too much coffee. I don't need all this. So I pick up my cup. I walk to the bathroom, take the lid off. I pour some in the toilet. I flush and nothing happens. I go, uh-oh. I flush, nothing happens. So I have three thoughts. The first thought is, uh, this is not good. My toilet doesn't work. My second thought was, well, I'm glad I found out this way because I don't have to use the bathroom. This is, yeah. And my third thought was, how am I going to explain the blackness of my toilet now? So I go to the phone, call the front desk, and I say, hey, uh, my toilet's not working. He says, I'll send somebody right up. All right, cool. That gives me a couple of minutes to rehearse whatever my story is going to be. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to tell the guy that um, I bought too much coffee. Um, why did I not pour it in the sink? I, I, he, he won't even think, he won't even worry about that. I'll just tell him I poured it in the toilet and it'll be over, okay? I rehearsed it several times. I'm like over prepared. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do like the cool black laugh and be like, ah, what's up, man? Like, I'm gonna rub my hands together and be like, what's up, bro? You know, just pouring coffee in the toilet, you know, no big deal. So I hear the door knock, I open the door, the guy comes in, and I just kind of freeze and I'm nervous. I'm like, I'll wait till he sees it and see, you know. And he goes into the bathroom and he does like the, oh, God. And I say, uh, I, I had too much coffee. <laughs> and I think, oh, that, that didn't come out the, the way I had rehearsed it. So three lessons. Number one, never, ever pour coffee in the toilet. Number two, never, ever buy more than you can meaningfully consume. And number three, if you ever do one of those first two things, always be willing to laugh at yourself. Can I, can I add a fourth? That's good. That's good. Yeah, that's good. I, I have questions. You're in your hotel room. Yes. I think the fourth lesson is stop thinking so much and just lean over and go. <laughs> What's wrong with sipping a little? It's, it, you didn't too much coffee. Just sip a little bit out of the cup. Why do you got to dump the extra coffee out? Oh, wait. So you're not saying go to the toilet bowl and no. do that? Is that why some of you people that, that's say, what I thought, oh, right? that, what's wrong with you people? I'm talking about the initial cup. This guy but looks you at his over. cup. You, you bent over like, like, who does that with a cup? Oh, that so was the toilet. Okay, uh, so, that's a good question. I have an answer. You talk about you sat down the cup of coffee on the desk. You look down and it's too full. You think, I've got to dump the excess out in the toilet. That's stressful for me. Now I got to pick it up when I'm walking like this to make sure I don't spill it. On the, come on, on the hotel. I'm saying it's on the desk. Just lean over and sip it out of the top. We avoid all of that nonsense. I'm just trying to help out my bro. Man, so, so, so many lessons tonight. <laughs> Good night, everybody. That's the show. TK is. Uh, a bit of a philosopher. Actually, both of them, uh, both of uh, the Coleman's here are featured in, in Love People Use Things because I've gotten a lot of insight from, from both of them. I'm really grateful to share the stage with them because I have a lot of insights for you as well. Um, TK, I never know how to explain to people your areas of expertise. <laughs> and I'm not going to sit up here and ask you to like uh, give your resume to, to folks. But 
in terms of questions tonight, what, what, should, what would you like to talk about? What would you like to see people come up to the microphone and, and uh, if they're struggling with something, how can we help them heal? I mean, really, if there's just something in your life that you know you want to change and the change seems like it's not worth making, it's too costly to make, you don't have what it takes to make it, I love to workshop that with you. But ultimately, rather than me giving you instructions on what to ask, I love to just hear what's on your heart. And I'm sure that, you know, with the four of us over here, if, if I don't have anything to say, I can just hide behind the three of them and we'll come up with something for you. So stick with what's on your heart. Because I, cause I, th there's a quote by Howard Thurman that I love the most, and he says it in respect to career, but I think it applies to just about anything in life. He says, ask not yourself what the world needs, but rather what makes you come alive. For that is what the world needs, people who have come alive. So if you get out of your head thinking about, well, what's the right question to ask? What's the right thing to do? What's the right choice to make? And get into your heart and say, what's the thing that resonates deeply within me? What's the thing that keeps me awake at night? What's the thing that sets my soul on fire? Go with that because that's going to take you to interesting places. And even if it's not the theoretically right place, that's going to be the compelling story to live. I think that's a great place to start. Let's start with some questions. We need the first person to break the seal, and uh, here she comes. <laughs> Howdy. Hi. What's your name? My name's Christina. Hey, Christina. I wrote my question down because I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is, and then I'll give some context, how do you let go of the expectations of someone who's no longer in your life? Um, last year, kind of similar to Josh's story, lost my mom, and my serious relationship ended, um, which was absolutely devastating. Um, but what I realized is that I'm still clinging to the expectations that my mother had on me. I always felt sort of fortunate that she didn't put pressure on me to get married or have kids. She never said, I really want grandchildren, like what's, you know, what's up with that? But I realized now that she's gone, she did have career expectations of me to always make money, always achieve more, always do huge things. And now I am doing big things. I, I am earning more. I am self-sufficient and independent, and those are all incredible things. But I realize that I'm trying to prove myself to somebody, and that person isn't here anymore. Wow. I'm sorry for your loss. And I applaud the, uh, the bravery of this question, because you have a couple options here. You can meet her expectations, right? And make yourself miserable, it sounds like. Because if her expectations align with what you want to do, then you w wouldn't even question it. They wouldn't be her expectations of you. They'd simply be your expectations of you. I'm sure if you've listened to The Minimalist Podcast, you've probably heard me say that your happiness is moderated by your expectations. The unfortunate thing about that is our ha happiness is usually moderated by other people's expectations that are thrust upon us. So the how to let go is not about doing something. I wish there were three things I could tell you to do and then they would simply drop. It's simultaneously simpler than that and also much more difficult. Something that is simple isn't necessarily easy in practice. How do you let go of an expectation? You stop clinging to it. 
That's the only way to let go of something. When we got here, we, we flew in. We landed about 4 o'clock today. Thank God everything worked out. I don't know how it did, and I'm really grateful. But when we landed, we went straight to the hotel, and I dropped my bag off. Now, imagine if I were to ask the person at the front desk, how do I set this down? He'd probably look at me and say, well, you picked it up. You're the only one who can set it down. You see, I can't rip those expectations out of your hands. But understanding what is the desire behind those expectations from your mom? What does she really want from you? It's not that she wanted you to have some sort of high-power career necessarily. She didn't necessarily want the specifics that she thought she wanted for you. She wanted you to be happy and healthy and supported. And she thought, in her mind, that is the best path to get you there. But you can take a different path, and if you still end up where she wanted you to end up, well, then that's pretty easy to reconcile. I want to ask, you mentioned the relationship too. Um, So I have a two-part question for you. Is there something specific that mom wanted you to do that you're not doing and that, that's something you're wrestling with? What, what did you mean when you said expectations specifically? I mean, she wanted me to have the life that she didn't have. She really wanted me to have a career and to, be, to not need a partner, really. Um, and so you have the nice career. We just heard that. So... What is it? Do you feel like you've disappointed mom? No, I I feel like she's not here for me to tell her Uh, whenever I have my successes, which I'm I'm having a lot now. Okay, okay. Look, mom, like, look, like, look at me. Look what I'm doing. Okay, okay. And I'm going to comment on that in a second, but I wanted to dig into that. There's something deeper here. And then anything along with this relationship, anything, when you mentioned relationship, uh, that that wasn't a part of the question because you mentioned it. There's some expectations there you're hanging on to. Yeah, there are that I you know that I wasn't supportive enough or that I wasn't you know there enough. I mean, I, I cling to some of those expectations that my former yeah. partner might have had yeah. of me, okay. which you know are irrelevant if we're not together. Yeah, you just answered your own question. Do you want to be with that person? No. Are they the right person for you? No. Then who gives a crap? <laughs> it's your life or their life. It's my life. Now let me tell you something. If you don't, now it's, it's funny to acknowledge that and everybody kind of giggles and we all understand that. But if you don't actually start living that way, watch what's going to happen. You're going to begin to resent a person who you don't even want to live with. You got to let it go. Now, on the mom thing, I think it's a little different. I, I don't think that you've disappointed mom. You've made that very clear. You have to let go of the sadness and you have to own that it is sad. It's real and it's okay to be sad for a season, that you're crushing it, and the one person in the world that you want to be able to call or go see and go, Mom, I crushed a huge deal today, and you just want Mom to go, I'm so proud of you, baby. Hey, listen, that's just being a human, and there's going to be moments like that for you for a long time, and it's okay that you're crying, and it's okay that you're sad. But you can't do anything about that. You can't bring mom back. So hold on to the memory of what she wanted for you, which Joshua really laid out beautifully, and know that she sees you, know that she's proud of you, 
And that's all you can hold on to. You hear me? But you're doing great. Can we give her some love? She's crushing it. Yeah, you're doing great. You know, any of these expectations that we hold on to, especially when it comes from other people, like there's nothing wrong with that. Like the question is we have to ask, like, is it serving the life we want to live? And it sounds like, you know, in your case, like some of those expectations are serving you. They're helping you do bigger and better things and awesome things. And uh, maybe some of them weren't. I think it's, it's awesome you've been able to kind of decide for yourself which ones to hold on to and which, one to, which ones to let go of. It's amazing. Hey, I'll, I'll tell something uh, personal here. So one, one little quirky thing about me that my friends make fun of me for is I listen to Christmas music every day. Okay, 365 days a year. I'm not kidding. The people closest to me can verify that it's true. He makes yeah. us play it on the podcast whenever he comes. And we love you for it, TK. <laughs> so I'll tell you why. When I was little, I had this uncle. His name is Uncle Cleet. He used to own this furniture store on the south side, of, south side of Chicago called Custom Corner. And it was on a busy intersection. And every year, he would clear it out and replace it with Christmas trees and ornaments and, and different kinds of holiday decorations. And he still had like this big workshop in the back that they use for like a lot of woodworking and stuff. And when you went to his store in the wintertime with all the different workers and so on, it seemed like you were in the North Pole. I mean, when you've got a childlike imagination. And on top of that, my uncle looked like a chubby, jollier version of my own dad. My father was very serious, he's a pastor not cracking too many jokes. This uncle would just be a total clown, laughing all the time. And he, he was like my Santa Claus. And I lost him when I was in college. And he always believed in me, and he would always tell me that I could do anything, and he just always had my back. And there was nothing that I wanted to do more than make that uncle proud. And I lost him before I could accomplish anything. And I remember one day I was in my apartment and I was just thinking about him and I thought about all those good times at the North Pole Custom Corner and I thought about what he represents in my life and it's like the middle of the year, I put on some Christmas music and I have no evidence that that man could hear me and I said, this one's for you, Uncle Cleet. And from that day on, I have played at least one Christmas song every single day for no other reason than to keep the energy that is him alive in my life, to remember the impact that he had on me, and to do something in this world that's different, that's weird, that's quirky, that's possibly inspiring, that might make someone laugh as a way to keep him alive for another generation. And I say that because even though we lose people, there's nothing wrong with doing things that honor the impact that they had on our lives. And that's a way that the energy of who they are can continue to live through us. And so I think there's something okay to have a moment that you set aside and you say, I did it, mom. And you might not be able to hear me, but I did it, mom. And I'm going to set aside this moment in honor of you. And I'm going to tell your story and keep you alive in that way. Someone is going to know your name and the impact that you had on me because of what I achieve on this earth, because I'm never going to shut up about you. I'm keeping you alive. I think it's okay to do that. Wow. Christina, we love you. Thank you so much.
TK, you might have to start asking me questions in a moment. We got someone. Howdy. Oh, there's maybe a couple. Yeah, there you go. Just, oh, yeah, just line this up. This is exactly how it goes. One person yeah, goes just line and up. it's like, yeah. <laughs> oh. Hello. Um, What's your name? My name is Cheyenne. Hey, Cheyenne. What's on your mind? I discovered The Minimalist last year, and I was off and running. You guys are a godsend. I took well. 30 boxes to the thrift store last year. I was on a mission. I was getting rid of everything. And I didn't stop there because I had some stress in my life. I was trying to figure out how to deal with it. And I figured out that I had to declutter some people. And I did it. And I've been called mean-spirited by, you know, some family, but I can live with that. I'm a type A personality. I don't care. I just do me. But Bravo. I, I just wanted to thank you, and I am going to buy your book, because i, I got to have that. But I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing. It's like a ministry. Oh, so thank I you. appreciate you. Wow. We I appreciate got... you. Thank you so much. Can, can I ask you a question? Yes. Because so, what you said, it was, uh, it was so simple and quick about getting rid of toxic relationships, but this is huge. This is one of the hardest things to let go of, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, um, would you be willing to speak a little bit about kind of how you were able to pick those people out or maybe how you were kind of able to let, let them go? To be totally honest, one mm -hmm. of the people is, is my son. Mm. Now, I love him. He's 44. He's got issues. I said, you're a grown man. You have to take care of you. Mm. I'll pray for you. I will give you something to eat. But beyond that, you're on your own, buddy. Mm. I'm still working. I want to retire, but I'm not ready to retire yet, really. And, you know, i got to take care of myself. But I refuse to take care of a grown man. Mm. There's a couple of other friends I had that were very draining. Every time they come around, it's wah, wah, wah. Nothing positive. I'm like, does anything go well in your life? I mean, did you like enjoy a cup of coffee this morning? Just something. But I can't take it when somebody's just negative all the time. Mm. No, nobody's life is like that. I yeah. mean, we all lost people. You know, I've lost about right. six or seven people to COVID last year. Mm. Yeah, you grieve, but life goes on. And I feel like as long as I'm on this earth, I gotta be the best me. So if that means cutting people are loose, I just gotta do it. Now, maybe the relationship can be repaired at some point, and that would be great. But if it doesn't, I'm fine. Yeah. I love that. Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah, give a round of applause for that. Wow. You know, there's a, a section in the book about letting go of toxic relationships. And one of the things that we talk about, we talk about a couple things, Cheyenne. One is setting up boundaries. And that's what you did with your son. And you didn't even like completely cut him off. You establish new boundaries. Now, the key to the boundaries is sticking to those boundaries. Quite often, if people trample on my boundaries, it's because I've also trampled on my boundaries. And, and of course, if I allow it, then anyone else. But you, you said that there are some people in your life that as you distance yourself from them, they might call you names. They might call you self-righteous, or they might call you selfish, or all these names. It's, it's obviously projecting. Imagine if our stuff could talk when we were letting go of it, what it would say about us. Yeah, yeah I was thinking about when you said you, were taking, you took 30 boxes to 
you know, local donation place. I, I did this the week after our, our second film came out, Less Is Now. It was a year ago uh, this month. And I, that same week, I just happened to, uh, once a month, I take a donation box into the Goodwill. And I showed up with uh, this box full of stuff, but half full because I'm a minimalist. <laughs> it was all my daughter's toys. I didn't tell her about it. I kid, don't get rid of other people's stuff. That's theft. Anyway, I show up there with the box, and I walk up, and they're like, and the guy goes, I'm sorry, we're not taking any more donations. This new documentary just came out, and we have been flooded with stuff. And so um, I can only imagine if, uh, if my stuff could talk, it would also say some, some bad things about me. Hey, I wanted to add something uh, on this difficult people in our life stuff. How many in the room uh, are dealing with some difficult people? You got difficult people in your life. Raise your hand. All around the room. How many of them are sitting next to you right now? <laughs> this one guy. The first question was just for information. The second question was just an intelligent IQ question. And uh, everybody passed it but this guy. Um, so... Um, one of the things that I'm so inspired by what you said, and I want to make sure the audience catches the brilliance here. Um, a week doesn't go by on the Ken Coleman Show where somebody doesn't call and go, hey, Ken, I want to leave this job, but I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint somebody, right? Whether it be family members, if it, if it requires a move across country or away, or you just, you, you're leaving and you've got some friends at work, you're worried what people are going to say about you behind your back. And I hear that over and over and over. And the other day I was giving advice uh, on this very issue. I get this call all the time, and it hit me. And I was giving the advice, and I said, basically what you decided to do with your son, which is so poignant and, and, and so intimate. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. And what happens is, is we as humans need to understand that we want to belong, right? And, and, and in belonging to whether it be clubs or groups or affinities or family, it's hard to then put in a boundary and say, I don't belong with you. That's hard. Now, the oldest relationship study in the history of the world is done by Harvard. It's now going into its 80th year. They've been following people since birth. And the number one conclusion from this relationship study is that 95% of your success or failure in life in any area is completely predicated on the people you spend the most time with. Mm. Complete. Complete, uh, you hear what I'm saying? So now here's, so I've given all this advice all the time and I finally said, look, you know you're supposed to leave. You, you know you're supposed to do it. It's the right thing for you. But you're so worried about disappointing someone with your decision. And that's very human and very natural, but I want to set you free tonight, okay? I've come to the conclusion, and I give the advice based on this. I would rather disappoint someone than resent someone. Ooh, you could tweet gonna, that podcast, Sean. I'm going to say it again because I want you to get it, and I'll shut up. We'll go to the next question. I would rather disappoint someone than resent them. You disappointed some people by putting up some boundaries. You disappointed them. But that's on them. Yes. I see that hand. But if we don't do what's right for us, we will resent them, and that lives with us. Disappointment based on the right decisions, come on. I live with that, but I, if I live with resentment because I won't make the right decision because I'm worried about disappointing someone, I become a really nasty, old, decrepit, 
ugly, nasty guy. And my heart shrivels up. So I just wanted to applaud you, but also share all of us in this room are going to have to make some decisions in life that will disappoint others. And you're going to have to learn to be okay with that. Well, you say let's applaud him. So. <laughs> Thanks, Cheyenne. Howdy. Hey, can, I, can I say something to Cheyenne? I, I promise I'll be fast. I yeah. Promise. This will be like 15 seconds. I promise. Go for it. Okay. Uh, what I just love, Cheyenne, I got to shout you out for this, is you illustrate it so beautifully that you don't have to disrespect someone in order to disagree with them. I loved how you said about your son, I still pray for him, I'm still willing to help him, but I'm not going to be a grown man for him, right? And, and, and so many times when we set those boundaries, it's important to remember that drawing a boundary line doesn't mean we have to draw a battle line. Just because we say, hey, I'm not gonna get down with you in that way anymore, it doesn't mean we gotta go, and I hope you go to hell in the process. You know, it's possible to look at someone and say, hey, I love you, I respect you, I want you to win, but I can't be the one to take care of you. I love how you did that. That's beautiful. Howdy, what's your name? Hi, my name is David. Hey, David, what's on your mind? I'm a pastor and have lived in parsonages, you know, bigger and nicer than a home I can afford in retirement. Uh, Retirement's about three or four years away. I know we will have to move into about a third of a space. So um, we have lots of boxes that in the last, since the last move, we have not even opened. <laughs> so I know we probably don't need it. I don't even know what's in them. Yes. Should we, you know, it, yet it feels too scary just to get rid of them unopened. So a little bit of word about process about that. And I never thought, when I was young, that I would want to get rid of stuff. It was about getting more and more stuff. But now that I'm in my right. 60s, suddenly it's not, the stuff isn't so important. All right, so David, let's say tonight you go home and you find out that those boxes spontaneously combusted. How would you feel? I wouldn't even know what was in right, He would feel nothing. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, you'd probably, Ryan and I call this the spontaneous combustion rule. So in our uh, book, we have these 16 rules for living with less. They're not really rules, they're just boundaries. We're talking about boundaries today. And, and one of them is looking at the things. And so I suspect what has happened is you've carried boxes from one place to another place to another place, carrying those expectations with you. I'm going to use this someday. You know, the three most dangerous words in the English language, right? Just in case. I'm going to hold on to this just in case I might need it for something. And it'd be fine if it was a box, but it actually allows us, convinces us to cling to tens of thousands of just in case items that end up actually getting in the way of our joy, our happiness, our contentment. Because there's nothing wrong with those things. The problem is when they stop being useful. The only reason you haven't opened up those boxes is because you don't need or want anything that's in them. But the emotional tie that we give to them, there's an emotional tether there. There's emotional clutter. Our material possessions are a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So when we have external clutter, quite often it's because of what's going on in here, up here, and mental clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter. There's usually something going on inside the fear that prevents us from letting go. But as soon as we start saying these things out loud like you just did, you've recognized the absurdity of holding on to things, and you don't even know what they are. That'll allow you to let go right there. 
I got a story about mystery boxes. That's what I called them that were just traveling around with me. I was uh, doing a garage sale and I'm like setting stuff out and I'm kind of like putting price tags on it. And I came across my mystery boxes. I probably had like five or six of them. And before I opened them, I was like, you know what? I'm going to sell these as mystery boxes. So I, I just like literally, I think I had eight of them and it was like, you know, $1, $2, three, all the way up to $8. And it was a lot of fun because people would, you know, they'd come by and inevitably like, what's the mystery box? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. <laughs> you want to find out, it'll cost you two bucks. <laughs> and it was, it was a lot of fun, like watching these folks unpack. They'd, you know, give me the two bucks and... This one guy, uh, he got, he, he, he was just so grateful for everything that was in there. It was like an old uh, kitchen box like that had like, you know, a can of tomato soup. He's like, oh, this is great. And like a, a, a half, you know, pound of sugar. I mean, the most random kitchen things. And he was like, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm like, all right, man. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my suggestion. Just sell, sell them off as mystery boxes and then watch someone else enjoy what's in them. <laughs> Howdy, what's your name? My name is Jake. Uh, sorry I missed the memo about wearing all black. You guys should put that <laughs> up next time. Um, I guess my question and the thing that's been uh, going on in my life and stuff is uh, growing up, just starting a professional career and things, uh, hustle culture, all that kind of stuff around. Plus, I grew up with a family of immigrants you know, from Cuba and coming from stuff, not much. So there's always this trying to do more and do more and do more. And that's kind of how I've been throughout my whole life. And I've even gotten to the point of some parts of doing other stuff. I used to be a tennis player, became a pro tennis player, got sponsored, all that crap. Walked away from wow. it because I hated that. Wow. Uh, even though I was really good. And it's just kind of understanding that, uh, I always just call it that kind of compass, that internal compass of doing something you want to do or like going with that. Um, and I guess like the biggest things, I don't want to end up uh, wherever the end is with that kind of, uh, you know, you didn't do enough. That's like my only fear in life. So just kind of how to go through that and even doing stuff that you love, even though you suck at it sometimes, but stuff like that. Um, where's the fear? What's driving the fear that you're never going to do enough? And I, when I ask you that, I, I want you to think for a second. Yeah, I know where it's from. Tell uh, me. Yeah, so kind of... Christina asked a bigger question that I was afraid to ask, but I definitely lost someone who is very important to me. Uh, and at that time, they were, I lost them. I wasn't able to, I was kind of doing nothing, pretty much. I dropped out of college and had a deadbeat job, just kind of a deadbeat person. And, uh, you know, they didn't get to see me succeed or do anything. And I guess that's kind of put a chip on my shoulder and it's never going to be not enough at the end, because at their end, they, I felt like they didn't see me at enough, at least in some point in my life. They obviously love me, but... Yeah, okay. So that's important. But I think what you've got to now do is very similar to this question, but you're going to have to separate the real pain. And, and, and if therapy's the game, I think you've got to do this, because this will hold you back at some point. Now, it has driven you to try lots of things, and obviously you're very talented and you've accomplished a lot already, okay? But this idea of trying to impress a ghost, and I'm not being insensitive at all, but that's what it is. The memory of that loved one is there, but they're not here. And, and it is the equivalent of you banging your head against the wall every day. Nothing good will come out of you trying to impress this loved one who's no longer here. I think if you switch your mindset, so I think you got to get healthy on the pain, 
and, and maybe you have. So, because you need to grieve that and really let that pain essentially heal. Now, the next pro- step in that process would be, would be for you to then, instead of trying to impress them, why don't you honor them? And the way that you honor them is by being the best version of you. Because they had some impact on you, yes or no? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Many of you probably have no idea who I am, what I do, and in part of my answer, I'm going to tell you what I teach every day on The Ken Coleman Show. Every person in this room was uniquely created. You have three essential elements to who you are, and young man, you have talent, okay? You have passion. There is a, there is a list of things that if I were to sit with you, we would determine pretty quickly there's, there's a list of types of work that when you think about it, you get excited. Maybe a role that you play, and you get excited about this. You're shaking your head, right? And then the last element is a sense of mission. All of us in this room have a desire to make a difference in the lives of others. If you agree with me, say yes. Yeah. Mission. So work is not, work is not a thing that we should do just for a paycheck. We should also do work to contribute to the lives of others, to make this world a better place. Do you agree with that? Say yes. Yeah. So what you got to do is sit down and begin to explore those three areas. How can I use what I'm really good at, my talent, to do work that I really enjoy? It's not being a professional tennis player, right? You tried that, okay? But work that you really enjoy, you. Not work that you think would impress this loved one that you lost, work that you enjoy that then produces a result that at the end of the day you say, I am at peace and I see the result that I'm contributing to this world through my work is making a difference that I care about. In doing that, young man, in being uniquely you, you will honor that person. Your greatness lies in your uniqueness. That's great. Thank you for your question, Jake. By the way, I wear black because it's slimming. I really weigh like 300 pounds, but you would never even notice it. <laughs> Howdy. What's your name, brother? Hi, I'm Jesse. I got the memo in the black. So oh, bravo. Nice. Bonus points. Jesse, you said, right? Yeah, Jesse. What's on your mind, Jesse? Yeah, actually, I just, you know, I think the pandemic's been hard on like everybody. And I just want to kind of hear from you guys, like some of the things that you might have gone through. But I just want to hear about the positive things that the pandemic has brought you or just all of you, you know, just in general. Yeah. Oh, you know, one of the biggest discoveries for me is, like, I know that I loved my wife, but I really found out during this pandemic that I, I really like her as well. And that doesn't happen so often, especially, like, families and family members and stuff. So her and I have really been able to, like, grow closer together, um, stronger relationship, uh, you know, being around the same person every single day and, and it, it not getting tiring is, that's huge for me. I never thought I'd be able to find that, but really, really feeling grateful for that after, yeah, so far. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that, like so far. <laughs> but she better watch out. <laughs> 2019 was the worst year of my life. I had... Uh, really bad medical illness, and I thought I was dying. And so that really put things in perspective for me. You know, I started ending up in an emergency room, and we couldn't figure things out. And, and um, 
I'm an expert in letting go of stuff, right? But it helped me put everything else in perspective as well and stop clinging to everything, including this moment and including outcomes. I've let go of virtually everything. The previous question, gentleman Jake was talking about, I'm afraid I'm not going to have enough. And I think some of that comes from a childhood, right? Ryan and I grew up really, really poor. Food stamps, government assistance, alcohol and drug abuse in the houses. And we never had enough. And so I carried that into my 20s. When I was making good money, I'll buy more, more, more. I need more, 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 more. You're already enough. And I understood that intellectually before this whole pandemic, but I really understand it viscerally now. I don't need anything else or anyone else to complete me. I'm already complete, and therefore the people, the things, and everything else in my life can only augment or enhance my experience of life. But if I don't show up whole, I can't expect other people to fill my emptiness. Um, For me, when I was in high school, I read Diary of Anne Frank and went to go see a play on it. And that's a story that I revisited, like mid-2020. And something that really stood out to me this time around was how, you know, you have this Jewish family that's living and hiding. And if they so much as make a sound, that can be the end of their lives. They are far beyond not being able to go outside to go to a shopping mall or go to a movie. They have to not only stay inside, but they have to create the illusion that they aren't even there. And even in the midst of that, life happens. Birthdays come and go. And when it's birthday time, the family found a way to celebrate a birthday. They found a way to light some candles. They found a way to take whatever food they had to make a cake. They found a way to sing some songs. All while in the backdrop is this foreboding fear of death that says, if you make a sound, you're all dead instantly. And I think one of the powerful lessons in that for me is that when we go through dark times, we have to fight for our right to celebrate our humanity. Going through dark times isn't just about finding ways to stay philosophical or stay spiritual or stay deep. It's also about looking for the excuses to laugh, looking for the excuses to hug each other, looking for the excuses to find something to be silly about or play pranks on each other. And it can be hard to remember how important that is during very difficult times. And so one of the things that my wife and I discovered during this time is just the value of creating space for that. We never really played games together, and we started to do that. We spent a lot of time playing board games, you know. We spent a lot of time solving murder mysteries together. Um, We spent a lot of time, like, reading books together. And those are simple things that don't make the world a better place, but they preserve our humanity. For what does it matter for the world to be good if there are no people who are in touch with their humanity still surviving in that world? I think the big positive for me, guys, and it's a great question, I love that mindset, uh, was that I realized how much of a control freak I was, and because I'm not an administrative detail guy, and I think I thought previously that people that are very detailed and organized, you know, are, are control freaks, and, and I'm not, but I'm a control freak, and I think that it forced, the good thing is it forced me to confront that I need to focus more on controlling what I can control. 
And that's not a whole lot. And it freed me up. And um, in so many areas. And so, I, you know, it, it, I want to be a buffalo, not a cow. Some of you are going, Ken needs his medication. <laughs> so I learned in this time that the buffalo and the cow, they're both related. They're cousins. Uh, and yet they handle storms differently. And 2020 and 2021 was a storm, huh? And uh, here's what happens. So when the cows are out on the plains or in the field and a storm comes up, the cows say, oh, crap, and they run away from the storm. But the storm is moving faster than those fat, stupid cows can run. <laughs> and so the storm catches up with them, right? Yeah. And so for a while, they're running with the storm. Uh -huh. The buffalo are out in the plains, and they see a storm, and those brave animals say, giddy up. And they turn into the storm and run to the storm, and as a result, by running into the storm, the storm's moving this way, the buffalo's moving this way, the buffalo spend less time in the storm. Mm. Wow. And so I think that's what I learned is that 2020, it's like, hey, there's going to be storms of life. Some of them affect all of us like that one did, and I can only control what I can control. So I'm going to be a buffalo, and I'm going to say, giddy up, the storm is coming, I can't do anything about it, I'm going to run through it, thus I'm going to spend less time in it. Good. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah. I, I will tell you one funny thing real quick. When the pandemic first started, someone tweeted at us and they were like, well, uh, as minimalists, I bet you're missing all that stuff now, aren't you? <laughs> and I think Josh responded with like, yeah, I really miss that broken waffle iron that I was uh, keeping around. But one thing the pandemic has shown me is like we unintentionally prepared for this pandemic. And it's only through hindsight that I could see that. And we even talk about it in the, the beginning of the book there about... You're saying we as in anyone who's a minimalist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the, the whole... Yeah, in a way, you know, the first chapter of the book is, is a, it's called Pandemic Preparation. And that's really what not needing all the things we thought we need does for us. It better prepares us. The fewer things you need to be happy, to be content, to be at peace, to be joyous, to be free, the better. There was this, uh, the part I was reading in the book earlier about uh, Jennifer Kirkendall when she looked around at all her stuff and it was so complex, right? And she thought back to the times when things were simpler. And I've had so many people at these events come up and say, you know, the best time of my life is when everything I own could fit into my car. Now, it doesn't mean that if you got rid of everything and just everything you own fit in your car, that's going to make you happy. No. But that's a metaphor for being free, for being untethered, because then the possibilities are endless. Howdy, what's your name? Thank you for your eloquent responses so far. Thanks, Jenny. <laughs> just so far. She said so far. No pressure. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I think you may have just answered my question, but what about something that may you know, seem like the opposite problem, but paradoxically may stem from the same issue, which is somebody who uh, saves and saves and saves and kind of sits like a dragon over their gold. What would you recommend for that person where they cannot spend? Yeah, so when... when frugality becomes, well, crippling in a way. 
TK or, or Ken. Well, Ken, so Ken works at Ramsey headquarters. His boss is Dave Ramsey. And so Ken is, is a money guy and understands this stuff, um, the, the intricacies of it better than me. Do you have any insights on this? Well, I, we need to figure out what's driving this fear of spending. So the saving, it's gone from wisdom to it's like I'm not living. So having full storehouses is wonderful, but it should not preclude you from actually living. So without knowing the situation, I would want to dive into their fear. And if they're my family member or friend, I'm going to go, hey, what are you afraid of? And I would keep it that simple because there's a fear driving that. We see this a lot with people who walk the baby steps. We'll hear this on the Ramsey show. So they get gazelle intense and they do what Dave Ramsey tells them. They live on rice and beans forever for three or four years. They pay off all their debt. Then they put their emergency fund in place and then they pay their house off and they'll call us up and they'll go, can I buy a $30,000 SUV? And Dave and I are laughing like, yes, you can. You know, but there's this mentality, right, that you get so focused and so locked in on a goal that those people are just looking for permission to actually live because they've changed their appetite, right? And so that's a little different. This one sounds like there's some deep stuff going on, and this may be some therapy involved. It's hard for a friend or family member to kind of broach this subject, uh, but it's fear, Joshua, that's driving that. When you have so much saved and you're still saving, you're just like, it's going to rain. I know, but it's never going to flood like Noah's Ark again, so you don't need to build the ark. Yeah. And there's some fear driving. I just don't know what that is. Yeah. TK, you and I recently had a conversation. We were on stage in Atlanta a few months ago, and you talked about abundance, and you talked about wealth versus abundance. And we don't have to rehash that whole thing. You can actually listen to it on our podcast. That episode just came out. But do you have any additional insights? Because it seems to me that it's much more than money here. This is a, this is a scarcity mindset. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, any asset, no matter what it is, is capable of becoming a liability when you divorce it from its purpose, right? So value doesn't come from what you have. Value comes from how you use it. And sometimes we have these goals. Uh, you know, I want to buy that car, or I want to save up for a house, or whatever it may be. But that goal is so far away, we have to embark on a journey of making sacrifices in order to get there. And so you learn to get accustomed to saving, to not going out, doing all these sorts of things. And you start to get in the weeds, and you lose sight of the goal, and then you begin to idolize the process by which you arrive at the goal. And by the time you get to the goal, you've made a God out of all of the sacrifices that you had to make to achieve that goal, that now you're too busy worshiping that and you forgot what you were supposed to move on to. So there, there's a story about a man who took a boat and he sailed from his country to another country. And when he got to the new land, he carried the boat on his back and walked around. And someone said, hey man, why do you have a boat on your back? And he says, well, I used to live in a faraway land and I always dreamed of being here. And this was the boat that got me here. And the guy said, the boat has done its job. Sit it down because now the boat has become a burden. And I think the things that get us where we want to be in life become burdens when we idolize them by forgetting the purpose that they're there to serve. Money is not intrinsically valuable. Things are not intrinsically valued. They're tools. And when we forget to use them, they become weapons. And those weapons only harm us. So, I don't know this person, I don't know who you had in mind when you were asking that question, but instead of 
trying to get that person to change, instead of trying to get that person to spend, instead of trying to make them feel bad for hoarding, I would challenge them or rather invite them to remember, what was it that started that in the first place? So maybe a question like, hey, I'm curious, when did you start saving money and why? And see where that takes you because when you get them connected to that why, then that'll give both you and them the how to know what to do next. By the way, you're supposed to drop the mic right now. Just drop the mic. That was, that, was, that was really good. Give me some love. That was good. Hey, that was good. Hey, tell the, I just want the audience, you need to retell that boat story, but act like it's yours. That's really good. <laughs> I, I will say this, and, and Ken, you all talk about this a lot at Ramsey. One of the things that can get someone out of that hoarding mindset is to give is to contribute beyond yourself in a meaningful way. Now, it doesn't have to be money. Paid, er, checks are one way to do it. In fact, it's a phenomenal way. If you earn a lot of money, one of the, the best things you could do is go earn a ton of money and then give it to the people and the places and the organizations who need it most. You know, there's a great website called givewell.org that rates the best charities in the world, the most effective use of your money to save people's lives. Being able to contribute beyond yourself is one of the things that makes you feel alive. Howdy, what's your name? Hi, I'm Melanie. Hey, Melanie, what's on your mind? Well, as I was standing in line, my answer got, uh, my question got answered. <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to quickly thank you guys. Um, tomorrow is my last day at a job that was unfulfilling and that didn't make me happy and negatively affected. Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's yeah. all clap for her right yeah. now. Congrats. Yeah! Woo! Hey. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. thank you. It was after that podcast about, you know, work um, relationship and things like that. I really didn't have a good work-life balance. So I finally decided that it's time to give myself a mental break. So thank you for that. Congrats. Um, thank you so much. Um, uh, oh, good. I'm sorry. I was just going to have another question, but if you wanted to follow up. Well, I just wanted to ask you, like, from the time you were like, I'm going to quit my job until, like, tomorrow, like, what? how much time passed in between that? Because I think oftentimes people look at us and they're like, well, those dudes just like quit their jobs and started a blog. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and we w would never recommend that. So I'm just curious, like how much time passed but from the time you got the idea to now? Uh, two months. So I gave okay. them a good one month notice. Awesome. I'm leaving on good terms. So, you know, cool. everything's good. Congrats. Um, but another question I had was that um, me and my coworker were talking about relationships with our partner and um, because I listened to your podcast, I was saying that I am no longer attached to my partner. And she was like, oh, I'm not attached to my partner. I'm very dependent on my partner. And I was like, huh. And I just wanted to ask, um, what's the difference between, I guess, being attached to a person or things versus being dependent on people or things? Yeah. I, it's, uh, people get upset when I talk about attachment. But um, bear with me. We're all adults here. Um, fundamentally, you're probably talking about the same thing. Uh, it, definitions don't really go anywhere, and so it's really the essence of what you're talking about. To be dependent on someone is certainly to be attached to them. It's to anchor yourself to them. By the way, isn't that a funny thing? When uh, Ryan and I were really successful in the corporate world, people told us how anchored we were. Well, that just means you're not able to go anywhere, right? And so attachment... Well, what does that, what does it mean? If in the book, the end of the book, the last chapter, we talk about love. 
And what does it mean to love? Well, to love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. Well, one thing that blocks love is our attachment. Now, it's an attachment to an outcome. I want, yeah, really, Ken, I really want you to wear these shoes. Or I really want you to work this job. Or I really want you to do this thing. And if you do these seven things, then conditionally I will love you. That's a type of attachment. But when we drop our attachment to someone, that's when we're actually able to love them, to see them for who they are. So I don't care what you call it, attachment, dependency, clinging, all of these things are, are just words. What is the essence of it? And what do you feel in your viscera? And if you feel as though, you see, we've been lied to. Pop songs and poetry tell us things like, you know, oh, I need you, I need you, I need you, I love you. Well, that's not love. That's clinging. And that simply gets in the way of love. I, okay, I agree with all that. I'm going to give you a perspective of a guy who's been married almost 24 years. I have three teenagers, okay? Pray for me, by the way. I agree with Joshua. I think we got to be careful about how we use terms in this day and age. I could say attachment in one conversation. You could say it in another. It means totally different things. But I would say this. I think we think too hard about words like that sometimes, too. And I'll tell you why. In a loving, committed relationship, all right, and if this offends somebody, I don't care. In a loving, committed relationship in which I am in with my wife, Stacy, I am both attached and dependent on her. Let me explain. When mama goes away for four or five days, even though I've got three teenagers, I am quickly made aware of how much I depend on mama. She's the CEO of our house. I depend on Stacy. Stacy depends on me in some areas. Does Stacy need me? Could she survive without me? You better believe it. Okay? But let's just not overthink words and things like that because in a committed relationship, you should be attached to somebody in a healthy way and you should be dependent on them in a healthy way. That's the whole point of a relationship. And dudes, we aren't as good at a whole lot of things that women are. Come on, you can clap for that. And I won't say the flip side of that, but that's true. Like, women, you're not as good at some of the things that dudes are, right? But, but here's the deal. I, that's all. I, I agree 100% with what you're saying. And, and I, but I want us also to stop overthinking words. When someone says, I'm attached. Oh, you're not as independent as I am. Stop the nonsense. Stop this nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, when you use the word like detach or whatever it is, I think the question is, is like, how is it, you know, serving your life? And if it's strengthening your relationship, great. But if it's something that is ruining the relationship, then maybe it's something that needs to be looked at. Regardless of, you know, what stance or how you use the word, I think what Josh and I talk about a lot, especially with our things, but this also goes for relationships, is the willingness to walk away from anything. And do I need my wife? No, of course not. Does she need me? No. But yeah, we love each other very much. I'd be devastated if I lost her. But I do have that willingness to walk away that actually helps us have a stronger relationship. I wake up every single day not feeling anchored, not feeling tied. I look at it, and I'm like, oh, I want to be here. And if I didn't want to be here, I would be willing to walk away from it. Yeah, I think sometimes people say they're committed when they really mean they're obligated. These things aren't good or bad, by the way. It's not a value judgment, right? We're all obligated to something. You had an obligation to be here tonight. You chose to be here. And 
we fill our calendars up with obligations, but when someone else begins to dictate our obligations, there's a, a great experiment that uh, Anthony DeMello recommends to see whether or not you're attached to your partner, to a friend, to a coworker, whomever, an important person in your life. Walk up to them and say, I'd rather be happy than have you in my life. And if you can say that to them, then you're not attached to them. That means you're actually showing up not out of obligation, not out of some pious sense of I'm supposed to be here, but I get to be here. In a weird way, I'm not committed to my wife. Commitment is like, oh, I guess I have to show up today. No, 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 I'm devoted. I get to be here. I get to wake up next to you. That's what a miracle, right? And so when you get to do something as opposed to being obligated to do it, well, the essence of that, you, you feel it in your heart. One bit of context for that question was the conversation you were having with someone. I, I think um, when you're having a discussion with someone and you say something like, hey, I'm not attached to X, Y, Z, and they say, oh, well, I'm not attached either, but I'm dependent on it, and you think to yourself, what the heck? And that inspires you to come here and ask a question. I would say, you can use conversations like that as an opportunity for connection. If I'm in that conversation, I might say, huh, what do you mean by that? And hear what they have to say. Who knows what you agree on that you might discover, or who knows what new insight or twist she has on things that might be a beneficial way for you to look at things. Sometimes we think that to let another person talk and to listen to them without debating them on every point they make is the same as agreeing with them, but it's not. Sometimes we can use those disagreements, those weird WTF moments as opportunities to just say, what do you mean by that? And then sit back and listen, and we can learn and grow. And also, we bring meaning to other people's experience when we do that. That's my two cents. Thank you. Howdy, what's your name? Hi, I'm Gabby. Hey, Gabby, what's on your mind? So unlike Jake and Melanie, um, I find myself in a career that's very deeply fulfilling to me. Ironically, uh, it's also in tennis, um, but <laughs> uh, Jake kind of inspired me to come up and talk because of that, so thank you. Um, but my question is kind of what do you do when the pendulum swings the other way, where I find myself really pouring a lot of myself into my work and getting a lot of my identity and value from that. and Outside of work, I feel like I'm drained and don't have the energy to really pursue other worthwhile efforts. But I know I'm creating and doing really great work where I'm at. So just kind of, uh, hmm. yeah. Yeah, so uh, in that situation, it could be the season of life you're in. Are you in a relationship? Yes. Okay. Uh, married, just dating? Dating, long distance. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's part of it. So there's a little bit of context there, right? You don't have somebody to come home to. Um, and, and I think that what you have to do is you have to realize that the, there's going to come a season in your life where you won't hopefully have to deal with that conflict. Right now, it's kind of a contextual moment where it's like, I don't have to come home to somebody so I can keep pouring into it because I love it. And I'm going, 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 but now I'm drained. Um, but there's going to come a season where you're going to have to choose to cheat work sometimes. 
even though you love it. And that's what I teach, that you, you can find work you love. You can find work that, that you can get great meaning from and make plenty of money. But you're going to have to put some boundaries in as it relates to work as you advance in your life, both relationally and professionally. And so understand this, if you are losing at home, you are holding yourself back at work. If you are losing at work, you are holding yourself back at home. See, we, I really think human beings have purpose in two areas, professional purpose and relational purpose. I think relational is far greater. We were made to relate. So I, but we have purpose in both areas of our lives, and so we can't separate them. So if you start to fray at home because of what's going on at work, you have to fix that. And so what we want is we want to see health and being able to turn things off. And I think one of the things that you ought to do is find something else that you really enjoy in this season, since that relationship is long distance. Find a hobby, a group of friends, something else that really fills you up and that you enjoy doing. And so you have something else to look forward to besides all that passion at work, which is great. But you gotta have something to come home to that you get excited about. And in doing so, when you switch that flip, uh, flip the switch, rather, your mind and your heart into something else. I have it because I've got a wife and three kids. I got plenty to do and plenty is expected of me when I come back home. And so for me, I turn it all off because largely, I have to, to be the husband and father that I want to be. And there's plenty, and I have enjoyment there. And so for me, I have something to distract me that I love more than my work. So in this season, find something like that, and then tell yourself, hey, here's the good news. I love what I do. I need to turn it off a little bit so that I maintain some balance and habits that you'll take into your life when your relationships get more complex. Thank you. Thank you. Howdy. Hi. What's your uh, name? My name is Gil. Hey, Gil. Um, like the two people before me, um, most of my questions have been answered, but um, I think one last question that just really came to mind was, just for short context, um, I've basically stumbled uh, in an interesting situation for myself where um, at the time of my life, I just played the cards right. Uh, I started to get paid without knowing I was going to get paid in the future, and basically it kind of got to the point where I became comfortable, my ego was inflated, uh, money and, and a little fame just came out of nowhere, um, but I felt that, I realized that I just, it just came, uh, it just came from a, heart, a place from depression, and I just found myself just depressed and anxious, even though I was making tons of money, more money than I've been, uh, more money than I used to as a barista. Um, but I was just stuck of the place where I'm at. I'm trying to find the purpose in a situation where I'm already making money um, that it just feels like just numbers entering in my bank. Yeah. Um, and, you, yeah. You know, the, the woman who was speaking before you and the, the tennis part in particular, some, it was so compelling for her that what she was worried about was like, maybe I should be doing something else with my time. And and my thought to that is, well, if there's nothing more compelling than doing the thing that you're doing, then you found the thing that gives you meaning, purpose, whatever you want to call it. Because these things, they don't have intrinsic meaning. Clearly, tennis isn't inherently meaningful. Otherwise, uh, I think it was Jake who came up here earlier, he would have found meaning in it as well. No, it was meaningful to her and not him, right? 
And what it sounds to me like what you're saying right now is you've found some success. But all success is, well, here's where Ken and I are definitely going to disagree. All success is failure. And, and what I mean by that is when someone else is defining the metrics. <laughs> I, I don't know that I disagree. I've got to hear the full thought. <laughs> when, when we're defining the metrics, when someone else is defining them for us, we chase it. Well, why do we chase it? Because we think it's going to bring us fulfillment or happiness. That's the same thing we do with consumerism, right? Consumerism is the ideology that buying things is going to make me happier or more complete. And then we do that with careers. We do that with, as you said, fame, right? We think as soon as I attain the object, my desire will be met. It's almost as though we don't want our desire. We have Peter Rollins on the podcast all the time, and we've done a few podcasts with him. He's a theologian, and he talks about desire. And one of the weird things is it's almost as though we're trying to extinguish our desires. I really want this object. I really want this promotion. Because as soon as I get it, then I won't have the desire for it anymore. But it isn't the desire that actually makes you feel the most alive. Yeah, I, I don't know that I disagree with you. I just call that out. But I think it depends on how you define success. Sure. And I think you and I do agree on what success is. I, I think success is you being the best version of you. I don't think it has anything to do with the amount of uh, dollar signs in your bank account. I don't think it has anything to do with how many people know your name and follow you on Instagram. That's status. I don't think it has anything to do with power. I think success is about significance. Have you fulfilled your significant role in this world? That to me is success. Martin Luther King Jr. said it better than anybody has ever tried to say it. He got asked to speak to a, a group of middle schoolers on a whim. Have you heard this story? You know the speech. He was in Philadelphia, and this is at the height of his influence. And he's asked, and he's very busy, and he's literally changing the world. And they ask him to come speak to these middle schoolers, a bunch of eighth and ninth graders. And you've all heard or read this passage, but he's speaking to these young people, and, he, and I'm paraphrasing to quickly get through this, he said, don't let anybody rob you of your somebodiness. And then he goes on, you've heard the famous passage, he says, if it falls your lot, and I'm paraphrasing, to be a street sweeper, then sweep streets like Michelangelo did sculptures. Sweep streets so that all the host of heaven will look down and say, there lived the greatest street sweeper the world has ever known. So my definition of success is significance. You don't disagree with that, do you? Well, I think we've, uh, we've met in the middle here. <laughs> I thought we were about Bring to get a minimalist get... debate going. <laughs> I got a little nervous up there. Speaking of that heavenly host, I heard somebody say one time that if God has called you to be a king, don't stoop to the level of being a circus clown. And then another guy responded to that and said, and yes, but if God calls you to be a circus clown, don't stoop to the level of being a king. The value of what we do isn't in how the world sees it. It's in how God sees it. It's fulfilling Amen. our calling. But the context for what you talked about is you got success. And you have discovered that success doesn't necessarily make you well. And you use that word depression and, and something that you seem to be struggling with. 
in relation to that topic, my non-professional insight is that you create space in your life for professional insight. Depression isn't the type of thing that we can deal with by simply reading one book or getting one insight from a Q&A. I would create space in my life to talk to somebody who is trained to give you the tools so that you can do the inner work of cultivating the wellness that you need. Because no amount of money is gonna be a substitute for that. Your soul is worth it. You hear me? Yeah. Yeah. And Joshua said it earlier. Yeah. Joshua's advice earlier, we're gonna bring it back to you. In this interim, while you're doing that, because I think TK's absolutely spot on, and while you figure out what you really, really wanna do, take some of that money and bless some people. Start seeing an impact with that money you're making. Yes, sir. Thank you. Man, I, I empathize really with what you're going through because, you know, growing up poor, growing up in a broken home, uh, mom and dad always complaining about money. Yeah. yeah, like I was just like, oh, we have money problems. And if we didn't have money problems, then my parents would be much different people. And uh, so that's what I did when I got older. I just started making money and I had this number in my head of $50,000. And I got that number because I was working with my dad one time and we were painting in this house and we we're like in a, you know, it was a nice-ish home. I'm like, hey, how much do I got to make in order to own a house like this? And he's like, son, if you can make $50,000 a year, you could own a house like this. So like that was... This my, is in the 90s. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it was in Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> so yeah, I started making 50000 and I was like, oh, this isn't enough. Uh, you know what? I need to adjust for inflation. And I just, kept, I just kept making more and more and more. And what I eventually realized was like, oh, money, it solves only my money problems. <laughs> and the problem is I, I wasn't very clear on what, what a meaningful life meant to me. I, I did define it as, oh, having enough money to do what I want. No one can tell me what to do. I won't have to rely on anybody. I'll be able to buy whatever I want. I'll never want for anything. Um, but when you start chasing money or success in that manner without really understanding is what you truly value, then it has a high probability of, of kind of ending where you're at right now. So I would just encourage you, if you go to the minimalists.com forward slash V, it's even in our book, there's a values worksheet and it really just helps you get clear on what your values are. And you can, I mean, there's three different levels. You've got, you know, found foundational, you've got uh, structural, um, you have uh, the surface values. There's even a fourth one that's um, called imaginary values, like things that we tell ourselves matter, like you know, Facebook and email and all that, that really doesn't matter at all. But once you get clear on those, on those three areas, then you can start, look, just start with the foundation. Like, where am I at with this? Because whenever I feel a little depressed or a little out of balance, I, I look at it like, okay, how are my relationships doing? How, how is my health doing? Uh, when's the last time I contributed? So, um, yeah, man, just start getting clear in your values. And I guarantee you, like, you'll at least start to see some of the road uh, start to appear, uh, appear in front of you. Ryan, you talk about the values here. And what you're, you're bringing up to me is like, when you don't understand your values, money amplifies a lot of your poor behaviors, you know, just crappy behaviors. So Ryan, when you start, and we wrote about this in the books, so I don't think he'll mind me telling, but like, when Ryan started making money, he was also spending about $5,000 a month on opioids. Oh, it was way more than just opioids, but... <laughs> <laughs> He's like, don't underrepresent represent yeah, my, yeah. my habits. Uh, and 
I think part of the problem was like it amplified those habits, right? But if you understand who you are as a person, because you're not the job title, you're not your Instagram handle, you're not the amount of money in your bank, you're not the person your parents want you to be, you're not the person your friends want you to be, you're not even the person you aspire to be necessarily, because quite often what we aspire to be is what everyone else is, their definition of success is, and that's what's making you stressed out, miserable, depressed. Earlier, Ken talked about you, you, know, you, the people you surround yourself with will dictate more than anything else. You never see a really happy person hanging around a bunch of miserable people, mm, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, why is that? Because they let go of the miserable people. They set up those boundaries. They set up boundaries with the career. They set up boundaries. They know who they are and who they want to be, not who everyone else wants them to be. Yeah. Thanks for your question. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. Ryan. Is it time? Man, it, no, so we have a long line of people, and we're actually over on time, but don't worry. Because, Ryan, it's time for something special. Yes, it is time for the landing round where we answer your text messages. So you guys got to pull out your phones and just text us at this point. I'm just kidding. We'll answer your live questions. But typically, this is where we answer text messages. If you have a question or comment, you can text that to 937-202-4654. And our first question is from... Oh, by the way, real quick, before that, uh, we try to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. We call them minimal maxims. Ken and TK are familiar with this, but really we just ramble on a little bit. And Podcast Sean, who's back there somewhere, he makes them pithy. Ladies and gentlemen, Podcast Sean. Yeah. He's always hiding in the shadows. Howdy, what's your name? Uh, hi, I'm Ella. Hey, Ella. Um, so, where to start? Um, so I'm a sixth-year college student, and um, in the past year, especially, um, I had a lot of different losses. For example, I lost three aunts. Um, my friend group just exploded, imploded. It was ugly, it was bad. Um, and then at the end of the summer, I had a really rough breakup, which was kind of just the cherry on top, and it, that was the person who was with me throughout all those losses, so it was like, okay, now there's no one who was there to watch that all happen and can understand what, every, what all happened this year. And now I'm going into my last year of college, or last semester, actually. And it's kind of just like all these friends and these people who have been there to build up for everything in these six years of college. And now it's like, where do I go from here? And I, like, I have ideas and I have things that, I, that are still existing. I didn't like, lose everything, everything you know, everyone. But it's kind of like how do I, like it's two prongs, so how do I let go of people who aren't in my life anymore, like my ex-best friend who I lost, who's still around, and I might run into her at school, and people like that who haven't died, but they are not part of your life, how do you, like, reconcile that, and then how do I move forward, um, I guess this is more career type thing, like, six years of school, and now it's like, all I've ever done was school my whole life. And now it's going to be the wide open possibilities. And there's almost too many options I can, as I'm looking for jobs and apartments and deciding where to go next, I have no idea where to, where to start. Ella, um, well, TK, you've worked with a lot of, a lot of students. Um, he 
he started a company called Praxis, and, and it's an unconventional way to educate people. Um, we often confuse schooling with education. But um, when you talk to someone like Ella, because there's a lot of uncertainty here. There's personal uncertainty. There's professional uncertainty. What do you see? So first, on the motivation piece, you've had these friends who have kind of been an anchor for you, and now you've lost them. The first thing I think is that faith, by its very nature, is, is that which must feed in order to be fed. In other words, sometimes the best way to get what we need is to play the role of finding someone else who needs that and giving it away, okay? So you've lost friends that have helped motivate you with your schoolwork. I would look around for other people who might need some motivation and pour into them some of the things that you have learned as you're reaching your finish line, people that are at an earlier stage than you. And by feeding into them with the faith that you have, you'll find that your own faith will be amplified in the process. That's the first thing I'll say. Regarding the uncertainty, I would say, don't treat any aspect of the next step like a marriage. There's no need to make any lifelong commitments to anything right now. Just focus on what you're curious about right now, what you're interested in right now, and trust that as you pour yourself into that, the experiences that you gather, the skills that you learn, are going to be transferable to whatever it is you do in the future when you have clearer ideas of what it is that you want. One of the things I, I tell students who are in a place of uncertainty, I don't really know what I wanna do, is don't try to make decisions for your 45-year-old self, for your 50-year-old self. Because number one, the decision's guaranteed to be bad. Life isn't meant to be lived that way, right? But try to make the kinds of decisions that will put you in a good place so that when you do know what you want, you'll have the power and the autonomy to act on it, right? And the way that you do that is you focus on your curiosities and your interests now. You pour yourself into them. It's kind of like, like with dating. If you imagine how stressful it would be if every time you went on a first date, you were like, where's this going? Are we getting married? Like, that's, that's a guarantee that it won't work, right? But, but you say, hey, let's get to know each other. Let's see what this is about. And if this goes well, we have a second one. No pressure. And if that one goes well, we have a third one. And after a while, we might have something that's worth taking to the next level. I would approach career the same way. I would just add very quickly, you have the fear of the unknown, and it's the greatest fear of humans in the history of the world. It's terrifying, right? It's why we pull off the road when we get into dense fog or a heavy downpour. It's terrifying. You're dealing with the fear of the unknown. Welcome to life. It's okay. But the answer to the fear of the unknown is knowledge. So go get some basic answers. And I think TK is right. What I would do is I'm going to give you three simple questions. You won't even have to write them down, but I want you to get answers to them in the days and months ahead, okay? Because there's a work solution. There's an opportunity or two or three or four or seven attached to these answers. The first question is, who are the people I most want to help? Visualize them. Go hang out with some, like he's talking about. and Get, get, get clear. Who are the people I really want to help with my work? Secondly, when you begin to think of those people, you've already come up with the answer to the second question, which is, what's the problem they have that I want to solve? And then the third question is, what's the solution to their problem that I want to provide? People I want to help, the problem they have, or we could say desire they have. Maybe you want to help women feel beautiful. 
Okay, it's fine. You could come up with a cure for cancer or do someone's hair. All work is honorable. Who are the people I want to help? The problem that I, that I want to solve for them or, or a need I want to meet. And then what's the solution to that problem that I get excited about? Therein lies the connection to your heart and to your unique makeup. Do you understand? So answer those three questions and explore. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, you know, if I had to pick the answer... I'll, I'll be more. Is it pithy or pithy, first of all? Whatever you want to say. Pithy. You can say whatever you want. Don't do me like that, pithy. man. Just tell me how to it's say pithy. it. Pithy. Pithy. All right. Okay. So you pithy. got something pithy? No, no, I'm saying next time I'll be pithy. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Uh, it's very similar. I was telling uh, with, with the previous question that the road to a meaningful life is paved with values. Take it one day at a time. Like you have all this overwhelmed because you had a lot of bad things happen. You don't want it to happen again. And it won't as long as you understand your values and you don't make the same mistakes. My, my wife, she loves to go ride horses. She came home. How did it go today? And I see her limping through the door. And she's like, not too well. I fell off the horse. I was like, oh, damn. Like I started looking. And she's like bruised. She uh, landed on her phone, shattered it, uh, scared the hell out of her. And um, she wanted to get back on that horse, which I know that's a cliche, right? If you fall off the horse, get back on it. But here's the thing about that is you have to take a lesson from that fall. So uh, what was the, what, why, why did she f- fall? She didn't like cinch the horse well enough with the saddle. So the saddle tipped over when the horse went a little crazy. That's the lesson she took from it. So um, yeah, that's it. The lesson might also be that you hate riding horses. <laughs> And if so, that's fine, right? And so the thing I would posit, I don't know how pithy this is, but maybe you didn't really lose anything. Maybe you gained a whole lot of freedom. Howdy. What's your name? Hi, my name is Rachel. Hey, Rachel. And I, um, I work with kids age uh, 12 through 18, sometimes 19, um, as an academic advisor. And more so now than I, when I started teaching like seven years ago, I'm finding students when I'm asking them, you know, what are they passionate about? What are they interested in? They're telling me Instagram, YouTube, video games, you know, in just, you know, 10 year span, it's changed, it's ramped up a lot. So for people who are in mentorship positions, what can we do? What opportunities can we set for students and young people to kind of what you said in the very beginning of the show, um, to help them find what makes them come alive. TK, you work with a lot of kids. <laughs> this is you started have... a mentorship company, go. <laughs> Pithy, now. <laughs> Sometimes the problem isn't how do we help them find what makes them come alive. Sometimes the problem is we find out and we hate the answer. Oh, boy. And it sounds like that's That's the case, right? And look, I say this like I've had kids break my heart. I was talking to somebody today about somebody, somebody that I coached who had an amazing job offer. Like it was so amazing. I was jealous. I was like, I want this job. Right. And it was just so amazing. And they were just kind of like, I just want to go have fun. And I wanted to cry. Right. I wanted to cry because I'm like, but I love this version of your life. So sometimes we discover what makes them come alive and it's not what we want for them. And there's a letting go. There's a heartbreak because we built up these expectations for what we wanted them to be. Right. It sounds like they're, they're being honest with you when they say, I like what's happening on Instagram. I like what's happening on TikTok. I like what's happening on YouTube. And that, 
And that can make us nervous because we know that those things might not be around in five, 10 years. We know that, you know, it might be hard to make a living on those things. But here's the thing. First of all, discipline is never acquired in the abstract. It is only acquired by doing specific things that matter to you, right? So in order for someone to have discipline, they've got to have something that they care about. And they've got to go after it and experience like that process of having to develop skills in order to get what they want. Most of the discipline that, I've, that I acquired in my life came from genuinely thinking that at some point in my future, I was going to make it to the NBA and my dad being like, go for it, go for it, go for it, right? And I'm like, yeah, all right, I trial for the basketball team, I don't make it, and I think to myself, that's perfect. I'm from Chicago, this is the start of Michael Jordan's story. I'm great, right? I, I watch a lot of game tape, I practice, I hustle, I got up at six in the morning, I'm doing figure eight drills, I'm working out, I actually get good. I learn how to dribble with my left hand, learn how to shoot with my left hand. I get decent, but decent like a guy who needs to practice really hard to be decent. And I, you know, sometimes the game was fun. I never made it to the NBA. I tried off my high school team every year for four years. And my coach pulled me aside one time and he said, hey man, I saw that play that y'all did, you know, a few months ago. I said, yeah. He said, stick with theater. <laughs> he said, stick with theater. He was right, though. He was right. But here's the thing. Every time I face a challenge in life, I look back to those basketball days. And I say, that's what taught me how to get up at 6 in the morning. That's what taught me how to run five miles. That's what taught me how to apply myself, how to face my fears, how to deal with conflict. I learned it all in the context of pursuing a dream that was never realized for me. You can't make someone learn discipline. They gotta have something they're passionate about. So take what they're interested in and challenge them to do constructive things with it. All right, you're into Instagram? All right, I'm gonna give you a challenge. Make one video every week. That's incredibly hard to do. If you can get any one of your students to make a video every week, they will have done something that most adults in their life are too scared to do and have never done before. Yeah. That's incredibly I, It's difficult. really good. I mean, it's super, super fast. Okay, it's pithy. He's absolutely right. You have got to ask them what they like about Instagram. At first, you're going to get consumer answers. Don't get frustrated. You've got to be the adult. You've got to keep digging a little bit more and find out the creativity that draws them in. Every person in this room is a creator. It looks different than, than it does for everybody else, but we're all creators. I think what he said is brilliant. I think you have to not get frustrated, and you got to dig in deep. I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying dig deeper to see where the connection is to what they're consuming, to what they would like to create. There's a story there. And then I would say one other thing from a mentor standpoint, and, and I'm speaking to parents too, we got to do a better job of just paying attention to our kids, just actually pay attention to when their eyes light up. There are clues everywhere, and if you get your head out of your own freaking phone and you get their heads out of their freaking phones, we might see their eyes light up a little bit. And I think as a mentor, you can do the same thing. Yeah. Watch their eyes. Yeah. I, so I totally am stealing this from Will Smith, by the way. He just came out with a book. But he talks about with his kids, uh, you know, their little seeds that get planted, and he, it took him a while to learn that he had to, like, just help the seed grow. He didn't, like watch the seeds start to sprout into like a walnut tree. And he's like, no, 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 no. This needs to be a pear tree and try to like make, you can't make a walnut tree into a pear tree. So rather than trying to make a child something it isn't, it's, it is really about helping a child grow. If you're worried about 
the fact that they find Instagram or TikTok or whatever the new social media platform next year is that find it so compelling, it's because they don't find something else more compelling. Because as soon as they do find something more compelling, it actually doesn't require the type of discipline that we're thinking about. When TK is talking about discipline, the discipline arrived when he found the thing that was compelling. Quite often we try to reverse engineer that. If I'm just really disciplined about basketball, maybe I'll like it someday. No, 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 no. He found the basketball so compelling that the discipline shows up. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to do our best to get to at least one more, but maybe two more. I apologize to the rest of the line. They're going to kick us out of here. Plus, I know we're testing the limits of everyone's bladder here tonight. We'll try to do two more, y'all. Howdy, what's your name? Kit, you say Kit? Kit, yep. Good to meet you, Kit. Thanks for being here. Thanks. What's uh, on your mind? My question for all of you is how would you define the difference between meaningfully and intentionally goal setting and the distraction between how far you've come? Because I can't tell if it's a Venn diagram or a definite line between I'm not done learning, growing, and working more, and it's not enough. Here's where I bifurcate from everyone on the panel. Will you ask that? I I heard where you were going, and I think you – would you ask that one more time? But I want you to be super – because you were there, but super specific about where your conflict is. Ask it that way. Is the act of intentionally setting goals and never letting yourself, you know, kind of stagnate or just staying where you are a form of distraction? Mm. Yes. Yeah, and so I'm interested to hear what they have to say because they, uh, they, they may think something different from what I think. Um, I don't have any goals. I, I, I don't need to improve myself. Uh, I have an eight-year-old daughter. When she was a baby, I never went to her and said, you really need to improve. Here are three goals <laughs> that are going to help you be a better human being. I understand why people put goals for. If you want to do something, there are steps toward getting there. And so I'm not opposed to uh, goals are bad or evil or whatever. But in the corporate world, I was the goal guy and I was wildly successful. I was also wildly miserable. My goals stressed me out and and made me um, anxious. They made me tired. They made me be the person I didn't want to become. In fact, becoming is often the problem. We think as though we need to become someone else. I need to pursue happiness. It's in the founding documents of our country, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness is actually the problem. Happiness can't be pursued. It's already there. It can only be uncovered. And we've cluttered it with expectations, with stuff, with careers, with toxic relationships, with calendar clutter, emotional clutter. We have all of this clutter in our lives that's covering up the thing that we're already looking for. And so if we let go of that excess, you recognize you already have enough to be happy. Well, I, I, look, if I think I understand the spirit of your question, are you setting some goals that you're not hitting, or are you setting goals and going through them like a wood chipper, and then you feel yourself exhausted because you feel like you've got to set higher goals? Is that what's going on? It's, it's setting the goals, reaching them, once you reach them, just on to the next. Just what? Just on to the next. Yeah, so, oh, okay, so, okay. So, you need to celebrate a little bit, yes? (laughs) 
I just watched what happened to your body. I just saw it. Everybody in the room saw it. Your shoulders just went, oh, you're not celebrating. Am I right? There's always the next thing you can get. Okay, but okay, we don't have time to unpack this because we want to get to more people. I'm going to tell you something. Oh, no, hold on. No, 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 no. No, no, I'm not leaving. Listen to me. Here's what's going on with you. We got to figure out why you're not celebrating. And it's not just the momentary celebration. It's standing up a little taller, looking in the mirror and saying, I'm enough. I, I, there's something deeper there. Am I right? Yeah. You don't have to tell okay. us. There's something there. <laughs> a person who doesn't celebrate, there's a reason. You're accomplishing goals and you can't just... So, so there's, a, there's a tension between contentment and um, complacency. I don't have time to unpack it. I'll try to be pithy. Here it is. I do disagree with you some. This is going to be a fascinating post-show conversation. Um, We should be content with what we have. We should not be complacent with who we are. I respectfully disagree that I should be comparing myself to one person and one person only, and that is the me of yesterday. I do need to grow as a father. I need to grow as a husband. I need to grow as an employee. I need to grow as a team member. I need to grow as a friend. I do. If I'm not growing, I'm dying. But that you hear the spirit of that? That's not this, I've got to perform and prove myself to everybody. No, i got to be me, and i got to get better each and every day when I can. And there are days where I screw up, but I don't quit. And so in the days where you accomplish the goal, why don't you just celebrate it and go, yes. But not because you accomplished the goal, but because of what the goal meant in your life. So then it begs the question, who are you setting goals for and why are you setting the goals? But I think you need to first dig into, talk to a really close friend, someone you can be honest with that won't BS you. And maybe you need to sit down with a counselor and get healthy. Something's driving that and it's unhealthy. And it's okay. Welcome to the human race. Nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Amen to that. Um, So this this is a pithy answer. Like This is just my own viewpoint on goals. So feel free to take this if you want. But uh, my goals don't define me. My acts of compassion do. And here's the thing, is that it's not just compassion towards others, it's compassion towards myself, which is sometimes the hardest to show compassion towards. So if you let the goals take over your life, it's, A, it's harder to show other people compassion. It's going to be harder to show yourself compassion. Um. You can, you can create from a, a consciousness of scarcity or you can create from a consciousness of abundance. To create from a consciousness of scarcity is to say, I am not enough, so I've got to go do something. Uh, i got to acquire something or achieve something in order to become enough, right? Uh, to create from a consciousness, consciousness of abundance is to say, I'm brilliant, I'm beautiful, I'm sufficient as is, but there's something within me that i got to let out, right? So how do we get a beautiful song we don't get a love song by somebody sitting around being like, this world needs a love song. Where is it? I'm going to go reach for it. We get a love song because it's in here. And I got to share it with the world. Hey, look, I've got this beat in my head. I've got this melody in my head. And I, and I can't contain it, right? The kind of creating that is healthy, the kind of creating that is enlivening is the kind that comes from that consciousness of abundance. I am not creating because I'm not enough. I am not creating from a place of necessity. I'm creating from a place of being in touch with my humanity, in touch with the mystery of who I am, and I've got things that I want to share with the world. I've got things that I want to do because I want to let who I am out as an expression of my joy. 
That's what's healthy. But when we create from scarcity, we never have enough because everything that we do reinforces a consciousness of lack. The way to find the balance is to look for the things to do that are an organic expression of your own spiritual unfoldment. Things that affirm who you already are, not things that are born out of a rejection of who you are. Amen. Thank you. That's, uh, that's where we're going to have to wrap this up. But before we do, I want to thank some folks. First off, Ken Coleman. You could check out his radio show. It's uh, appropriately named the Ken Coleman Show. They're still testing that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of hours of creativity put into that. Uh, it's in a bunch of different radio stations where you can just check out the podcast version as well. And his new book is called From Paycheck to Purpose. I could tell you since last time you were on our podcast, we've had so many people write into us and say they got the book and they got so much from the book and so much from the podcast we did together talking about finding a sense of purpose and meaning in the work that we do. I just want to acknowledge you, Ken, for being here tonight. Thank you so much, brother. Thanks. Love you, bro. Thank you. We love you, man. And TK, you can check him out 10 times now on the Minimalist Podcast, but you can also check him out on his own show. It's called Revolution of One. Follow him on all the social media as well. TK, you, um, you're just one of my favorite people on earth. Ryan and I absolutely love you, and we're grateful and honored to share the stage with you. Yeah. Don't make me cry, man. I want to thank our whole team with The Minimalists. It's not just me and Ryan. It's a whole bunch of folks. But tonight we have two of them here. Danny Unknown and Podcast Sean are hanging out, helping us out. Let's give them a round of applause. Let's uh, let's thank Sixth and I for having us in this beautiful venue tonight. Most important... I'd like to thank you for being here tonight. I don't know where you are right now in these uncertain times. I don't know where you've been. I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you're going. But if you leave here tonight with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for being here, y'all. Thank you. Thank you, Washington, D.C. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it 